You may have noticed this one on bookstore shelves just about everywhere. It is selling fast. It is nonfiction, but it reads like a spy thriller. The timing couldn't be more appropriate. In Freezing Order, a true story of Russian money laundering, state-sponsored murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath, financier Bill Browder details his fight for justice uh, in the murder of in Russia of his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. And he says the lessons he's learned being in the Kremlin's crosshairs for years now offer a glimpse into Putin and his regime that he argues many have taken far too long to recognize the true nature of. It is my pleasure to welcome Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign, author of Red Notice and the just released Freezing Order, a true story of Russian money laundering, state-sponsored murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. It feels like there's so much in in the story of freezing order that we're seeing played out on a much greater stage now with what's happened in Ukraine. Uh, but perhaps for listeners who aren't entirely familiar with the story of your lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, uh, who was murdered, and what you did afterwards, and the relentlessness with which you were <laughs> pursued uh, by Vladimir Putin for to try to to shut you up, essentially. Yeah, so Sergei Magnitsky was my lawyer <clears throat> in Russia. I was running a big investment fund there. Uh, Sergei discovered a massive $230 million government corruption scheme. Uh, he uh, testified against the officials involved, and he was subsequently arrested, uh, tortured for 358 days, and killed on November 16, 2009. Uh, following his murder, I made it my life's work to go after the people who killed him to make sure they faced justice. And that led to a piece of legislation um, called the Magnitsky Act. The Magnitsky Act freezes the assets and bans the visas of people who do that type of thing in Russia and elsewhere. <clears throat> Vladimir Putin was so infuriated by the Magnitsky Act, he banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. And then he came after me personally, and he's been chasing me all over the world with death threats, kidnapping threats, arrest warrants. I've been on the Interpol, uh, Interpol red notice list eight times. They've come, at, come after me with uh, extradition requests and lawsuits and all sorts of stuff. And basically, the level of, of um, energy they put into this um, has, has been one very strong indication of uh, how effective this new, new sanctions regime is, that, that um, going after individuals and their money offshore is something that Putin and his cronies really care about. And this was a matter that was so important to him that I gather it was brought up in that famous 2018 meeting uh, between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. Well, so, so even before that, in 2017, Putin sent, uh, um, I'm sorry, 2016, Putin sent um, one of his emissaries to Trump Tower, uh, a female lawyer named Natalia Veselnitskaya, to meet with Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort to beg for the Magnitsky Act to be repealed if Donald Trump became president. Um, it didn't get repealed. And then in 2018, at the summit that you're referring to in Helsinki, Putin asked Trump to hand me over. It's, it's, it's really remarkable. And, and, and interestingly, Trump said, yeah, I think that's great. What was running through your mind at that point? I mean, you'd been used to this by this point. You'd had a decade of being pursued or more at this point. Uh, but to hear your name uttered in those words and to know, uh, you know, and, and to hear the president say, the U.S. president say it was an incredible offer. Uh, what, what, what was your thoughts at that point? Well, I mean, I, I've been dealing with Putin chasing me for... <clears throat> For the you know the, la the the vast part of of uh, last decade, but I never um, felt at risk in America. 
And all of a sudden, to have the most powerful man in the free world, the president of the United States of America, effectively agree to that, that that made me feel terrible. I mean, I, I you know, I can deal with Putin, or I will, I, I have been able to deal with Putin, but but the idea that I could be sitting, I, at the time I was sitting in Aspen, Colorado, that I could be sitting in the mountains, you know, trying to enjoy myself and and picturing, you know, four blacked out SUVs, you know, surrounding where I was staying and having a bunch of secret service agents load me onto a, uh, into the car and onto a, a rendition flight back to Moscow or I'd be killed was pretty horrifying. Yeah. It's one of the many, many episodes within the new book that, that paint a very vivid image of what, of how Russia treats international rules to some extent. And we're seeing it again. And I think you've been very vocal over the years about this point that, that rules are just, they're not even suggestions for the Kremlin. They're, they're simply there to be, to be um, violated if possible. Yeah. I mean, the Russians love rules when it, when it relates to everybody else but they have no intention of following any rules when it, when it relates to themselves. And so, you know, they, they, when, when their assets get frozen in the UK, they all start screaming bloody murder about, um, you know, property rights, or if they get shut off of um, Russia today um, television, they, they're all, you know, bleeding about um, uh, freedom of the press. But when it comes to, you know, the, the, uh, in Russia, they kill the journalists, they um, steal property and do whatever the hell they want to do. When you look at the timing of the release of this book, and you wouldn't have known, obviously, we spoke before the invasion of Ukraine about the fact that this book was about to come out. Um, you must feel like the message that you're trying, the message that you're trying to send in, in this book is more important than ever one would think. Yeah, the message of this book is very, is very simple, that um, Vladimir Putin is not the normal head of state. He's a, an international criminal, a financial criminal and a murderer. And everybody um, in the past was having a hard time coming coming to, to terms with that. That, that. There was all these people saying, well, Bill, you know, you, you've obviously got some of your own issues and, you know, you know, uh, you know cool down, dude. But, uh, <laughs> but now everybody's seeing that, yeah, he's a, he's a, a mass murderer on a, on a large scale. And so, I mean, in a certain way, my book is not even as necessary anymore because everyone's seeing it on television every night. But, but my book also has a lot of other messages in there about the granularity of how Putin steals money from his people. And the other thing, which, which um, is not well known still is Putin couldn't get away with all this stuff. If he didn't have a bunch of accomplices and when these people are what I call, who I call the Western enablers who are working effectively for the Russian security services in the United States and Canada and in the UK and in Europe. And, um, and that's something which needs to stop as well. How have you, how have you assessed so far? I mean, we're at day 61 or 62 now of this invasion. Uh, how have you assessed the way that the international community has come together and carried out many of the things that you've been calling for, for a very long time? Uh, it seems maybe a little bit too late, too little too late at this point, uh, but certainly better than nothing, I would think. Well, it's a lot better than nothing, but it's definitely too little too late. And there's still a lot more to be do- done. I mean, we, we have uh, sanctioned about... Uh, three dozen oligarchs now. And I say we, because it's not, um, it, it depends on who we is. So sometimes Canada, sometimes the US, sometimes UK, N- nobody has a, a sort of totally combined sanctions list doing all the same thing. There are 118 oligarchs that need to be sanctioned. So a lot more oligarchs need to be sanctioned. And then the big elephant in the room is that um, while we're sanctioning these oligarchs, Europe is sending a billion dollars a day to Putin to buy his oil. 
and he's spending a billion dollars a day killing Ukrainians. How can that be allowed to continue? Has it surprised you at all that the, we haven't seen the kind of divisions I thought we might see, even now, between Ukraine's partners, so to speak? They're meeting today in, uh, in Germany to discuss Ukraine's needs. Uh, do, you see, do you see the unity there, or, or do you, are, is, are there warning signs that maybe others of, others of us would be missing at this point? <clears throat> I, I, I see a lot of divisions. I mean, it, it's all been papered over for public consumption, but Look at Germany. You know, are they cutting down? Um, have they stopped buying Russian gas? No. Have they stopped buying Russian oil? Maybe. Um, are they supplying the kind of military equipment that um, Ukraine is asking for? No. Uh, I think there's a lot of divisions. We're just doing the best we can to present, you know, present a unified face because that's important. But uh, I think that, that that particularly in Europe, they, they've they they need to step up to the plate. If they don't, um, they're going to be the ones on the front line next. You've warned about this for a while now. You think that Vladimir Putin in Ukraine is is just testing some boundaries that he would be he would easily uh, find himself on the doorstep of, say, in Estonia or a Latvia or a Lithuania. There's no question, and in fact, you can just read the headlines today. You know that the Russian the, the Russians are saying that effectively they're at war with NATO right now. I mean, all this tiptoeing around saying, we don't want to like do a no-fly zone. We don't want to do this. We don't want to do that because we don't want to enrage Putin and be in a, a third world war. We're already in the war. And so the question is, how, how do we um, keep this war to be as, as um, cost-free as possible in terms of human lives? And the best way of doing that is to show Putin some strength early on so he doesn't do something terrible later. I'm speaking with Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign and author of the just released Freezing Order, a true story of Russian money laundering, state-sponsored murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. After this, we'll talk a bit more about the war so far in Ukraine, how it's gone terribly wrong for uh, someone who likes to present himself as an, a man who knows it all and is a strong man of, of the nth degree. Uh, what has Vladimir Putin's reaction been to the last 61 days, one, one would like to know? And we'll ask that question next. I'm back with Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign, and author of the just-released Freezing Order, a true story of Russian money laundering, state-sponsored murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Uh, I'd be interested to know, you're, you've spent a long time watching and studying Vladimir Putin. Uh, he must be apoplectic about what's happened over the last 61 days in Ukraine, including the sinking of, you know, of, of, the, of the main warship in the Black Sea. Uh, I mean, everything seems to have gone wrong for, for Putin so far. Yeah, th- this, this creates a true threat to his position in power and his um, probability of survival. If, if he's seen to be weak, which he's seen to be right now with the sinking of the ship, with 20,000 soldiers killed, with all this unbelievable mess ups at every different stage of the invasion. Uh, if, the, if the Russian people knew that, if they knew what was going on, based just on, on today's facts, they wouldn't allow him to be president anymore. And so he has to bend the truth. He's got to um, suppress the truth. Uh, and he has to create all sorts of alternative realities. But this is his Achilles heel. On one hand, starting this war was a very popular thing for him to do. Everybody rallied around the president because people like to rally around the president during a war. But this war could be his undoing if this information and, and the 
perception that we have of him based on the information is shared by the Russians. What can the West do now? I mean, we're seeing a meeting today in Germany trying to discuss Ukraine's needs, but what do you think must be done now to either keep the pressure up or to make sure that Ukraine doesn't lose this war? Well, two very simple things. Give Ukraine every bit of military hardware that they're asking for. And two, stop buying Russian oil. If we did those two things, I think that Ukraine would win. I interviewed someone last week from Harvard who was saying that, in fact, we don't need to buy Russian oil. <laughs> we, there's, you know, there's, there's enough oil out there that it could be replaced quite easily and that the Russians have nowhere else to sell it. In fact, they're quite vulnerable. Is, is that something that you would agree with? I mean, are we, are we, not, are we once again treading too lightly? Well, oil is, oil is only one of the two. I, I, should, I should have said yes. it more properly. There's also the supply of gas. Natural gas is not easily replaceable because of the infrastructure involved. You need pipelines. It, it evaporates if you don't you know, put it to the place it's supposed to be going to. Oil, oil is easily fungible. You don't need Russian oil. And so I think that, that Europe will stop, by Russian, stop buying Russian oil. But I think that gas is a much more difficult question. It'll take longer. And that, of course, is where they make most of their money. You've posited a few different scenarios that you think are likely, more or less likely in the, in the near future. Uh, where do you see this all headed uh, in the not too distant future? I think the most likely scenario is that it just is headed where it is right now towards um, uh, an unpleasant stalemate. Putin isn't able to, um, to win the war and Ukraine isn't unable or is, is unable to eject Russia from its territory. And we end up just with more and more bloodshed and more and more loss of civilian life and, you know, heartbreaking heartbreaking scenario for for as long as we can imagine. Which is sort of what we saw begin in 2014, right? I mean, the, the war in, in the East in Donbass was essentially, this is a continuation to some extent, much more brutal and violent version of what was a bit of a frozen conflict. But as you've mentioned before, this all began eight years ago, not 60 days ago. Exactly. And so it began eight years ago, and it could easily go for, go on for another eight years. And what Putin is banking on is that after a while, we'll grow tired of watching it on our television and we'll, we'll start focusing on other things. And he committed atrocities without the, the world reacting to it. I mean, that's what we have done effectively with Syria. You know, we were all very sympathetic to the Syrians. And now who's talking about Syria? And you've obviously understood over many, many years the necessity of paying attention to Vladimir Putin and not, not letting him off the hook in these sorts of situations. That's true. And, and <clears throat> there is one thing that's very, very helpful in this whole scenario, though, which is that President Biden um, said that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal, he's a butcher, and he shouldn't be in power. It's very difficult to walk that back and go back to status quo after some, saying something like that from the most important person in the free world. When you set out to write to Freezing Order, uh, circumstances were very different, as you mentioned earlier. Has this now been a complete game changer? And you've been studying this for a very, very long time. You know this, this, this whole topic inside out. Have we now crossed a Rubicon with Russia that, from which there will be no return? I put it another way, that Vladimir Putin has crossed a Rubicon, which there'll be no return. And we're just reacting to that. But yes, we're not returning to anything like we saw before. It's going to take decades for Russia to overcome this and it's certainly not going to happen while Vladimir Putin is in power. 
So for the time being, if, if, if countries like Canada want to be doing more, and, and, and we seem to be able to find new ways to send more money, add more sanctions, what do you think must be done now in, in the near term to try to make sure that, uh, that Putin at least doesn't get to claim victory, say, on May the 9th? Um, more of the same. I mean, Canada is doing a good job. I'm, um, I'm impressed. I, I, I think, in fact, I, I'm impressed with most governments for the most part. I mean, I, I couldn't have ever imagined three months ago that we would be having 35 oligarchs on a sanctions list. I couldn't have imagined that uh, 600, um, I'm sorry, $350 billion of central bank reserves were frozen. I couldn't imagine that a lot of Russian banks were cut off in SWIFT. It's pretty, pretty impressive, but we need to fill in the gaps, close the loopholes, and uh, finish the job that we started. And in terms of the the sanctions themselves, clearly they will take time to bite, right? We're in that sort of that zone where they're having an impact, but we're not seeing uh, the full brunt of them yet. I don't imagine. Um, that's no, they're biting right now. Um, but but um, but for us to win this war, or for the Ukrainians to win this war, Putin's got to run out of money. It's not like the sanctions are going to dissuade him from what he's doing. He doesn't stop doing stuff with external pressure. He doesn't want to show weakness. But the sanctions are, are absolutely horrible for, for Putin and for Russia and for the oligarchs and for everybody. And so we just need to do more of them and so that eventually the, the money dries out. As a last word, um, as this book comes out with the messages including it's a very personal story for you, what would you like listeners, readers to walk away with from uh, with the release and the timing of it, given the timing? Well, I think that that everyone will walk away with the understanding that Putin's whole thing, not for nationalistic reasons, he's doing this whole thing because he's a, a petty crook and he wants to stay in power. And it's very important to understand the difference because all this I talk about him wanting to recreate the glory of the Soviet Union, nobody does that if there's nobody who has stolen the, the amount of money that Vladimir Putin has stolen from his own country is a patriot. And that's the important thing for everyone to understand. We've been misreading that for, for a very long time, I get the impression, in your eyes. I think everybody, even up till today, keeps on talking about him try, have, trying to recreate the glory of the Soviet Union. That's not what he's trying to do. He's just trying to stay in power. And he's using all these arguments as a way to sell it to the public. But this is what it's all about. It's just a criminal who's stolen a lot of money, who's been around for a long time, who has no legitimacy, who's desperate to, the, to not get overthrown. Bill Browder, congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you.